Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Hi, it's Alahe. Before we start the show, I am so excited to tell you about a new podcast we just launched. If you listen to The Post's history podcast, Presidential or Moonrise, you know Lillian Cunningham is a wonderful guide to our country's complicated past. Now, she has a new podcast. It's called Field Trip. And in it, Lillian guides you through America's national parks, their iconic landscapes, messy history, and uncertain future. I have to say, I was able to get a sneak peek and listen to some of Lillian's reporting. It's illuminating, surprising, and moving. And I cannot wait to hear the rest. The first two episodes of Field Trip are out right now. The rest are dropping every Wednesday. We'll put a link to Field Trip in our show notes. And you can also subscribe to Field Trip wherever you get your podcasts. It is the perfect companion for your summer road trip. Okay, now on to our show. So just a couple of questions about this. First, does this not undermine uh, the president's claim during the 2020 campaign and the reaffirmations of that claim by his two press secretaries since then that he never once discussed his son's overseas business dealings with him? No, and I'm not going to comment further on this. We're good. James, James, let me just, let me save you some, let me save, let me save, let me save you some breath. If you're going to ask about this, I am not addressing... There's been a hot topic lately at the White House press briefings. Hunter Biden. Administration officials were asked about the president's son last Friday after Hunter reached an agreement to plead guilty to two minor tax crimes. President Biden has continued to have to answer questions about his son and about not only the plea deal, but how much he knew during the time Uh, He's repeatedly stated that he did not know about any foreign business dealings that his son was engaged with. Matt Viser is a White House reporter for The Post, and he says that even though President Biden has not been implicated in any of these charges, the drama around his son, Hunter Biden, could pose a political problem. And it's not the only complication for the president, who's gearing up for the 2024 race there's still kind of a mood within the party that he's their best option. And it's a little bit by default where, like, they don't have an open primary. They don't have anybody else to turn to. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Wednesday, June 28th. Today, Matt explains whether the Hunter Biden charges will matter for 2024. Just as President Biden tries to convince voters, he's still the right person to meet this political moment. Matt, recently, President Biden has found himself in the middle of some political controversy after his son, Hunter, pleaded guilty to federal tax charges. Can you explain what these charges are about, and what will happen next with them. 
So there are two tax charges for the years of 2017 and 2018 where he's going to plead guilty on a misdemeanor. For those years, uh, he had taxable income that was greater than $1.5 million, and he owed money that he did not pay at the time. He has subsequently paid those taxes, but he's admitting and pleading guilty to the fact that he didn't pay them in a timely manner when they were owed. There's a second charge that's related to a gun purchase that he made when he was using drugs. Uh, He lied on the gun form saying that he was not using drugs. And then he continued to use drugs while he owned the gun that will basically put him on a probationary period for two years. So he has to agree to, to drug testing. And if he does that, then it's removed from his record. Those are the two sets of charges that he's going to plea to next month on July 26th in Wilmington. Matt, I I also know Republicans have made a lot of Hunter Biden's past connections to a Chinese and a Ukrainian energy firm. Does this case have anything to do with Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings? So the charges don't necessarily have to do with foreign business dealings. It's it's a little bit more simple that he wasn't paying taxes. Some of that income could have been coming from foreign sources, but he's not being charged with doing anything wrong related to that. We should note from David Weiss, the U.S. attorney, a curious note as they announced this that said the investigation is ongoing. So it's it's a little bit unclear whether him pleading guilty to this closes the book completely on the the Hunter Biden, you know, negotiations with the Department of Justice or if there's more to come. So, Matt, the other thing that I've been hearing about is that the Department of Justice has been accused of political interference as it relates to investigations around Hunter Biden. Can you break down what that is all about and where that stems from? Yeah. So, I mean, we should say that Hunter's going to plead guilty. You know, it would be a surprise if the judge doesn't approve this. And in that sense, the legal battle is over in one sense, but the cloud is not going away. There's these two IRS agents who were part of investigating this case who have recently come forward to House Republican committees and testified about what they see as political interference into the Hunter Biden case. Two whistleblowers claim that Hunter Biden received, quote, preferential treatment when prosecutors offered a plea deal this week. They think that it was not sprawling enough. They think that there's additional tax years that were eventually the statute of limitations was allowed to expire. So they they did not charge him for earlier tax years, which did involve more of his foreign business years where he was doing more business there. Um, They claim that they were told not to look into as much of Joe Biden and and sort of his potential involvement in in some of these things. Don't ask certain questions uh, as they were investigating. So their charges are kind of now under debate. How legitimate are those whistleblower claims? And is the essential accusation that they were told to slow walk it so it wouldn't hurt President Biden politically? Is that the crux of the, the accusation there? Some of it is slow walking, but there's, you know, certain messages, text messages that they have in, in some of the testimony that that gets more at Joe Biden, uh, potentially, or Hunter claiming that Joe Biden was sitting next to him as he's sending these text messages with a Chinese businessman. So there is some new information that they're coming coming forward with. 
And they are sort of claiming that they were limited in the years of taxes that they looked at. So there, there is, you know, some legitimacy, but ultimately it's up to the prosecutors to decide what to prosecute. You know, Matt, for years, President Biden's critics, particularly Republicans, have been zeroing in and very much focused on Hunter Biden, his son. When did this begin and, and why go after the president's son? What is it about him and their relationship and what are they out to try to prove? I mean, it seems to have its roots really in 2019 and 2020. But always that same thing. President Trump made a totally unsubstantiated claim about Hunter Biden and his father. And the lead up to the 2020 election with President Trump and his allies really focused on Hunter and casting him as somebody who's traded on the family name and profited from foreign business deals. It's not unsubstantiated, you crooked son of a gun. It's 100%. And suggested, without too much evidence, that Joe Biden somehow was giving a wink and a nod to a lot of the deals and that the Biden family has enriched themselves off of Joe Biden's political career. And Hunter, who's not too smart, Hunter, he goes in, he has a meeting, he walks out in his fund with $1.5 billion, with a B, $1.5 billion. So that's been kind of what Republicans have tried to focus on. You know, Matt, it's really interesting thinking about the Hunter-Biden dynamic as essentially being a line of attack that he has used his relationship with Joe Biden to enrich himself. When you think about who was in office before, Donald Trump, who you know, did a lot of things that were unprecedented regarding his business dealings. He didn't divest, you know, when he was in office, and that was very much out of the norm for a sitting president. So is this really actually a vulnerability for as a line of attack against Joe Biden? Yeah, it, it pales in comparison to what the Trump family did. Uh, Hunter Biden has not been a government official, unlike President Trump enlisted some of his own family members into the White House and on the White House staff at a time when they still had business arrangements around the globe. It's not of the same scale in terms of financial benefit, but it still gets into this kind of ethical area of what role should a president's family have when their family member is in a prominent position. And so I think Democrats often cast a blind eye to a lot of what Hunter has done, and Republicans cast a blind eye to all the Trump children did. I think another thing is that President Biden has had a long political career, and there's not much scandal around him. Hunter has been his biggest vulnerability on some of those charges because Hunter, even by his own admission, got entree into worlds that he otherwise wouldn't have simply because of his last name. And so that, that's what they're trying to exploit. Has there been political fallout for President Biden from this case around the tax misdemeanor charges? And, and what has the White House said about this? So the White House tends to take a pretty arm's length to any discussion about Hunter. The president invited his son Hunter to the state dinner last night. Um, I'm wondering if you could take us into the thinking and decision-making of why uh, the president decided to invite I, his son. I'm just not going to get into family discussion, personal family discussion. As you know, Hunter is his son. I'm just not going to get into it. They clearly are watching and monitoring it, especially through the White House counsel's office. 
But they generally try to say this is a Department of Justice investigation. They don't want to be seen as being involved in any sort of way into the investigation. So they generally don't comment um, other than to say that the president loves his son. Yeah, and we have to say there's an election coming up, the 2024 presidential election. President Biden is running for re-election. Do you think this Hunter Biden case will factor into this? And what question does it leave you with when, when you think about 2024? I mean, I do think anytime you think a Hunter Biden story is closing a chapter, a new one starts. <laughs> you know, so I, I do think members of Congress, you know, uh, vowing to continue their investigations. The IRS agents kind of give them some new things and new avenues to to explore so I, I do think that they're going to continue. I think the Hunter side will also kind of continue trying to be proactive. His legal team has been far more aggressive in recent months in trying to tell their own story and go after Hunter's accusers and sort of be more aggressive in that respect. I think you know, both pro and anti-Hunter aspects are, are not going to be quiet. So I think that he will be a part of it. I, I think the question still is, do voters care? If you're a Joe Biden supporter, you're inclined to see Hunter in a very sympathetic light. And if you're a Republican or a Donald Trump supporter, you're determined to see him in the worst light. So I, I don't know that minds are being changed through the discussion of Hunter Biden. But minds will be changed on other things, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. After the break, Matt and I go under the hood of Biden's re-election campaign and how voters are feeling about Joe Biden three years into his first term. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Matt, obviously, it's still early for the 2024 election. That's the caveat we have to give. You know, e even when we're looking at polling numbers, it's very early, right? But I do want to dig in a bit into where things stand for President Biden right now. He is an incumbent. He is in office. There are regular surveys and polls done about his approval ratings. Nationally, how do voters feel about the president? The approval ratings kind of go up and down. He's kind of in the low 40s right now, which is an improvement from a couple months ago when he was in the high 30s. You know, so the trend is more positive for Biden. But he's about where Donald Trump was four years ago. He's not as good as where Obama was at this point in his presidency ahead of a, a re-election campaign. So, I mean, he's still kind of mired in that low 40 area in terms of approval rating. If you talk to people around his campaign, 
they view themselves as having a good story to tell that people are not yet aware of some of the impacts of the first two years in office. Some of the policies that they passed, they haven't admittedly done as good of a selling job. And some of them, quite frankly, haven't gotten underway. There's a lot of infrastructure projects that take a while to get going, and they believe that they can get credit for some of that, and that will improve his standing among voters. And the economy is also a big part of that, that they're now talking about Bidenomics. <laughs> Not a lot of trickle down from my parents' kitchen table when I was growing up. So we're changing. We decided to replace this theory with what the press is now called Bidenomics. I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> but it's working. So they're reselling their economic proposals in, in kind of a more of a package that they think that they can sort of turn people's perceptions of him and the economy around. Yeah, what is the campaign strategy right now for President Biden? And are there any emerging themes or states even to focus on? And is there an infrastructure that's built out? What is the state of President Biden's reelection campaign? He had this event a, a, a week and a half ago in Philadelphia that was kind of felt like the first kickoff launch. There were 2,000 union members in a ballroom in Philadelphia. Hello, Philadelphia! Hello, organized labor. And it felt like a campaign rally in a way that he hasn't done uh, so far, really. A lot of his campaign has been quieter. He's trying to raise money. The end of the quarter is coming up. So there's a big push and he's doing all of these fundraising events currently. But they haven't opened a campaign headquarters, which they probably will do sometime later this summer in Delaware. Is that normal? It's a little late. I, I mean, I, I think that typically by this point, you might have things starting to get going and more of a clear campaign structure. The Biden campaign argument is that they don't need it quite yet. He's an incumbent president, so he has all of the advantages of that, that each time he speaks, it's treated as a major news event. So they don't necessarily need to kind of build the campaign infrastructure quite yet. And some of that can be costly, so they want to raise the money before they spend it. But there are some disadvantages to to not getting going and, and doing some of the groundwork that needs to be done to identify their voters and, and kind of get that process underway. Matt, can you tell me more about the issues that you expect President Biden to campaign on? And I'm specifically wondering about abortion access, because abortion access has been a huge political issue and galvanizing issue, it seems like, for Democrats ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. And we saw that play out in midterms. And is is that going to be one of the main issues that we should expect Biden to be campaigning on? It's interesting because I think Democrats will be campaigning on that. I don't know how much it will enter Joe Biden's, uh, you know, kind of lexicon. I, I can't remember him bringing it up in, in Philadelphia. It's not an issue that, like, he he's sort of even using the word abortion. He does not typically use the word. I, I think some of it is his Catholic faith, and some of it is it's just never been a part of his kind of political um, brand. I think the White House, it, you know, puts... Kamala Harris out a lot to talk about it, but Biden probably less as a forceful spokesman uh, uh, about abortion. Do Democrats view that as a political, just purely from a political strategic 
perspective as a miscalculation and that, in fact, if he wants to be successful here, that he should be out there more forcefully campaigning on this issue, particularly since if you look at who's running for the GOP nomination, I mean, there's little daylight among them on this issue. I think it's a little bit of a recognition on on their part that the 80-year-old white male is not necessarily the spokesman for something that is energizing a large swath of electorate in a younger demographic. Part of it is that Biden, when he himself talks about it, doesn't engender the same enthusiasm as it does when he talks about other issues. So I don't know that he himself has spent decades on this like he has spent on other issues. He is viewed as less of a strong spokesman for that. They'll still try to energize the base around it. I just don't know that Biden himself will be the spokesman for it. I see. Yeah, one factor that does come up often is President Biden's age and his health, questions around his health. But, you know, if you were to look, if he were to win, he would be 82 at the start of his second term. We should also note that the current GOP frontrunner, Donald Trump, is only about three years younger than Biden. But as far as you know, Matt, with Biden's health and age, do we know anything about whether that's impacted his ability to govern? And is this an issue that will come up a lot during the 2024 race? I think it definitely will come up. I mean, it comes up among voters and and people who see him. I mean, he does, uh, you know, at times look like his age. Uh, Other times, I, I think he's kind of you know, he tries to exhibit more vigor. He tries to kind of jog onto a stage. But every incident in which he seems to stumble, including a few weeks ago when he tripped on a sandbag on, on a stage, which, frankly, anybody could have done. But because yeah, he's... Me included. <laughs> yeah, but because of his age, it's seen through a prism, not of a human moment that anybody could have, but as an example of our elderly president, you know, tripping on on stage. So I think every incident like that they recognize can backfire. So I think that that is something that they're they're very cautious uh, about. And it's not just the general election that Biden has to concern himself with. He has, at least right now, two challengers for the Democratic primary, Marianne Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Are these challenges that his team should be taking seriously? If you look at some of the polling, it seems like Kennedy in particular, there is a marketplace. He's beyond the single digits in some of the polls. But when you talk to White House officials, they don't even kind of acknowledge him. There's not going to be debates. There's not plans for a full primary campaign. So it hasn't gotten to the point in 1980 when a relative of Robert Kennedy's, Senator Ted Kennedy, ran against Jimmy Carter in a bruising primary race that weakened Jimmy Carter heading into the general election with Ronald Reagan. There's no sense of that at this moment. There's kind of completely ignoring the fact that there are declared challengers to him. Matt, when you think back to the 2020 campaign and you were covering Joe Biden then and covering his campaign, his pitch that he was making to voters as he was running against Donald Trump. How does that moment compare to Biden's pitch now? He's been in office for a few years. Um, The campaign's revving up. How does the 2024 race compare to last time he ran? I mean, I think so much of the way that Joe Biden looks at politics is through 
being the antithesis of Donald Trump, you know, and sort of this last chapter of his political career, him viewing himself as the person best equipped to defeat Donald Trump. And that's what guided his 2020 campaign. And so far, it seems like that also guides him for 2024. I think if Trump were a complete non-factor, Joe Biden may potentially make a different calculus about running for re-election. And I think the fact that Donald Trump still has such a strong pull on the Republican Party, and at this moment seems like the likeliest Republican nominee, that's what drives Joe Biden again to run, is that he still views himself as the best antidote to Donald Trump. So I think that that's kind of the prism through which he is seeing the race. His arguments are a little bit different. Uh, He now has his own record to run on rather than running against Trump's record. So you see him start to talk a little bit about what he's done and in his eyes has turned the country around and helped the country have a different standing on the global stage and kind of repair the broken aspects of Donald Trump and what he represented. And that's what Joe Biden, I think, is trying to run on for 2024, is to run on what he's done to, in his eyes, restore the country. Matt Weiser is a White House reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh. It was edited by Rena Flores and mixed by Sean Carter. And don't forget to subscribe to The Post's fantastic new podcast about national parks. It's called Field Trip. The first two episodes are out right now, with more dropping every Wednesday. You can follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll also put a link to it in our show notes. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.